Hi, Willie. It is such a pleasure to welcome you to Network Capital. Uh, we're a full-stack mentorship platform. We enable millennials and Gen Zs to experiment with their careers, figure out what they want to do with their life, and then nudge them in the right direction. And essentially, it's a digital platform. So your book and your work is directly relevant to us. Um, and how you got there, your career, is even more interesting, perhaps. So let's start there. Like, Tell us a bit about your early career lives, your early interests, and how did that shape uh, your way to the Oxford Internet Institute? Well, thanks, Utkarsh. It's great to be here. Um, I, so I was originally a sort of bedroom programmer. Um, and then during the first dot-com boom, I was working at a dot-com company. And, uh, you know, we all, as a programmer, and we all felt that our code is going to change the world. Um, and we were all very wealthy on paper because we had stock options and the, the stocks prices at that time were going through the roof. And then the dot-com bubble burst <laughs> and our stock options lost their value. And I learned that it's not just technology changing society, but also the other way around that social and economic forces shape uh, technological development because suddenly our, our code uh, wasn't worth anything anymore and it was taken offline. And then through various different steps from there, I ended up doing a PhD in economic sociology and pursuing an academic career at the intersection of economy, society, and technology. And uh, what is your new book about? What's the, how did you start working on that? So my new book is called Cloud Empires. How digital platforms are overtaking the state and how we can regain control. And it highlights findings from past six, seven years of research by my research group at the Oxford Internet Institute, where I work as professor of economic sociology and digital social research. Um, and the reason I wrote the book is because through our research, we found out about ways in which these very large platform companies and digital platforms through which we do much of our business and, and uh, everyday life these days, how their rules shape um, basically who wins and who loses and mm. how you have to conduct yourself to succeed. And I knew that um, not a lot of people and not a lot, of, a lot of businesses realize this, even though it has a very tangible effect on their success in the digital economy. Um, so part of the reason for me to write this book and write it in a way that it should be as interesting and as accessible as possible uh, to the intelligent general reader, part of the motivation was to basically uh, bring these learnings from research to to benefit uh, benefit people people who are looking to do business online people who are um, looking to work uh, online um, and just people who are uh, uh, internet users in today's uh, today's world and therefore are touched by the digital giants. 
It's fascinating. Um, and the book is structured as a series of stories and case studies. Uh, how did you decide the format and the structure of the book? So it, partly it comes from um, my studies in uh, storytelling, starting from uh, back 20 years ago, I, I took a course in, 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 in creative writing and storytelling. And then more recently, I, I've taken some additional courses in that um, because I believe that storytelling is a little bit like a protocol in the computer world. Uh, for computers, we have to format our messages in a certain way. We have to use a certain protocol for the information to go through, right? They have, they have to have a certain file format. And mm -hmm. in the same way, I, I believe that the human mind has evolved to take in information in a certain format, uh, according to a certain protocol. And that protocol is the structure of a story. You can find the same kinds of structures uh, across different cultures um, and uh, throughout history. And if you know what those uh, protocols, what those structures are, I believe that you can more effectively communicate information and the people in the receiving end will be able to absorb that information better. So I wanted to uh, deliver all this scientific information in this way that's maybe new to scientific uh, writing, but it's actually very old in terms of human history. So that's why every, it, it's, it's, it's a sort of like a, an economic history of the digital economy, right? So the story starts from the 1980s uh, cyber bazaars, and then every chapter we move closer to the present day, and we learn about the, the sort of trials and triumphs of the various founders as they aspire to uh, shape the digital economy. And um, every chapter, it, it tells you about the history of a specific iconic pivotal platform. Uh, it also tells you um, about the social science of why they failed or why they succeeded or why often things worked out differently uh, from what they thought. And it conveys all this information in, in the form of uh, stories. Um, and these are fascinating stories. And you touch upon aspects in the book that, uh, that, is, that are easy to overlook for the uninitiated, for somebody who's not paying too much attention to you know, the sociological or the historical or the economic historical side of things. So let's try and figure out what the problem statement is in the book. So you know, for platforms like Amazon and others that have uh, you know, collectively increased the GDP of the internet, they have you know, enabled a lot of transactions to take place. But in a way, um, I understand from your argument is that they are behaving more as states and less as uh, digital platforms. Uh, so could you comment on that and uh, what are some ways in which uh, companies are starting to behave more like perhaps nation states? Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, you know, if we go back to, and this also is another motivation for why I wrote the book, I got on the internet in the 90s, as I'm sure sure uh, a, a lot of um, 
perhaps your your listeners did as well. And uh, at that time, there was this um, excitement about how the internet is enabling this new social order and this new uh, access to markets where individuals are empowered and entrepreneurs are empowered and there are no gatekeepers. Internet was circumventing brick and mortar gatekeepers uh, Mm. and creating that way uh, new opportunities for small businesses and for for individuals. And uh, then fast forward to the present day, um, we are realizing that actually these very large uh, internet platforms are acting as gatekeepers uh, who whose rules determine what sort of business is permitted and what sort of business is not permitted so we've gone from from this 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 sort of uh, circumvention of gatekeepers and uh, empowering of of individuals to uh, basically the opposite uh, conclusion and so the kind of one underlying motivation for this book was to kind of uh, answer the question of why did that happen and what should we do about that? And um, so, as you mentioned, I sort of the argument is sort of that um, these companies like you know Amazon, uh, Apple, uh, Microsoft, Google, and also smaller platforms that enable marketplaces, they have become something comparable to the state but in the digital domain and what i mean by comparable to the state is that they uh, enforce contracts if something goes wrong in a digital transaction do you go to the public court probably not i mean the the transaction costs and the delays are are too high to actually solve the case through lawyers and courts instead you complain to the platform the platform's representative investigates, uh, adjudicates, uh, sanctions the offender, and hopefully provides some restitution to the victim. And this is a very classic function of the state. And now <laughs> the platforms are performing it. And there are also there's a wide range of different state-like functions that they're performing, including uh, certifying learning so we have all these different uh uh, certificates from you know amazon web services certified engineer to uh google and 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 microsoft and uh and and other um, uh, certificates which are kind of then starting to step into the territory of publicly regulated education providers universities and schools in terms of providing and certifying the learnings that allow you to uh, get a job. And again, they're they're kind of stepping into the state territory there. And I think uh, there are uh, many other things that you point out in the book, which you know makes me think of uh, Amazon and even platforms like Etsy very differently uh, than than I look mm-hmm. at. If there's a uh, there's a slight. Um, point of departure most techno optimists will look at these platforms and simply look at how much of say consumer surplus they are adding and how efficient they have made things but they're not looking at it that how slowly they are becoming the ultimate adjudicators of uh, you know not just economic life but society as well but um, 
can't people who are not happy with the way they've been adjudicated mm-hmm. by a particular company complain to the state and perhaps take them mm-hmm. to task yeah well maybe it's it's important to uh know so why is why is this a problem in the first place right i know i i pointed out that they're becoming state like um and on the one hand that's great because that as you mentioned before that enables business uh the the way how they enforce contracts and resolve disputes makes it possible for strangers across the internet in two different countries to actually engage in transactions right and and, and enables these wonderful uh, marketplaces i'm from finland originally and now in finland there's a big mobile app development industry and that's all thanks to uh, apple and google creating marketplaces where Finnish businesses can sell apps to consumers all around the world and both consumers and the developers can feel uh, safe uh, that they will not get defrauded uh, when they do that so there's that that's the that's the positive side so where's the problem well like any state that is not accountable to its people uh, there's a temptation for the state officials and the state, uh, the elite, to start uh, abusing that power, to um, to tilt the playing field, and to benefit their own interests, instead of just providing uh, a wonderful, fair business environment for everyone. So, just to give one well-known example, uh, since we're talking about Apple and app developers, the uh, most popular music app on Apple App Store for many years was Spotify, which is a Swedish app. It's it's developed in Sweden, and so whenever you'd search for Spotify, uh, sorry, you whenever you'd search for music in Apple App Store, the number one search result is Spotify. This was the case for many years. Then in 2019, Apple releases its own competing product called. Apple Music, right? The next day, when you go on App Store, you search for music, Spotify is no no longer number one. It's not number two. It's not even number three. It's number 23 behind all kinds of apps that have nothing to do even with music. So Apple had used its state-like control over this marketplace, this transnational marketplace, to disappear a competitor. And uh, this is a problem, and this is something where uh, uh, you know where, where we where I feel that we need to do something. Now, your question was, well, can't Spotify in this case, or any uh, uh, internet citizen who is not happy with how the platforms treat them, can't they just complain to their government, and then the government regulates the company? And then everything is good. I mean, this is how things normally work, right? If 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 com- if companies abuse their power, and um, if they are in such a dominant position that uh, it's not possible for the users, just uh, the consumers or 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 businesses, to vote with their feet, then the government will step in and regulate. And the EU uh, has become, as you know, very active. In, in in issuing new regulations for the space. We have the Digital Services Act, the Digital Markets Act as an upcoming uh, data act and, and so on and so on. 
Um, also, the Indian government, in fact, has been uh, quite proactive, for instance, in regulating e-commerce. And this is good as far as it goes, but um, there, there's a number of problems uh, and uh, with it that I discuss in, in quite a lot of detail in the book. But the, the common cause, I think, of these problems is that whilst uh, governments, uh, their jurisdiction is territorial, and their, their mandate to regulate, as well as their ability to regulate, is based on the idea that they have control over a territory, a specific part of the surface of the earth. Whereas with these digital platforms, the whole point almost is that they make it possible for us to do business across different jurisdictions to do transnational business, to, to sell globally. And in this situation, uh, first of all, the governments don't always have so much of an interest in, in the problems of the platform users because the businesses that are active, like let's say app developers in a particular platform, they're spread around the world. And uh, whilst in total they, there might be millions, within the jurisdiction of any particular government, they might actually be quite a small interest group. And that mm -hmm. government might have more pressing issues to deal with. And the concerns of some obscure uh, platform uh, user group are not necessarily at the top of, uh, top of their concerns. Now, in some cases, like I mentioned, the EU government has been proactive because there are enough businesses, enough consumers in the EU who've started to make a noise about this. And there, the, then the challenge becomes, well, you can regulate it for the part that touches on your territory. But as mentioned, this is transnational business. So is are your rules then going to apply to the rest of the world as well? We talked about this is the Brussels effect, mm. right? That the Brussels can, can set the rules for, and then the entire internet has to follow them. And this is not great either because there are a lot of people um, in different places around the world who don't necessarily agree with the rules that are emanating um, out of Brussels. And so I don't think this is a very, um, uh, this is the future, you know, how, how things will work out in the future. Mm. And there's other issues as well, but I, I'll leave it at that for now. So the, the government regulation is needed. It's good, but it's not the ultimate solution, I think. Right. Um, what are the differences between um, nation states and these platforms that are beginning mm -hmm. to behave like nations? Yeah. Well, the key difference really is in the shape of the jurisdiction, right? The similarities, they enforce contracts, they enforce property rights, they regulate markets, they prevent market failures, um, they, they certify skills, they categorize products, um, they they protect, they catch uh, cyber criminals. Um, so there are all these similarities, but the key difference is in the shape of the jurisdiction. Uh, nation states or states are part of the definition in international law is that they control a contiguous piece of territory and their jurisdiction is territorial. For these cloud empires, as I call them, their jurisdiction is not territorial, it's personal. 
it applies to any business or any person who has placed themselves under their authority in a given market, in a given industry. And uh, that is where their value comes from. They're able to create this sort of a, a transnational institutional environment where the same laws, the same rules uh, apply to an app developer um, or, or an online merchant uh, or a Twitch streamer or whatever, regardless of whether their customers are you know, in Finland or in, in the UK or in India or, or any other place. Um, and that lowers the barriers to trade, that lowers the so-called non-tariff barriers that exist to business between different countries. And it creates this sort of like a business environment in the cloud, a transnational institutional environment. Um, and so that's that's the difference. They're, they're kind of non-overlapping uh, jurisdictions. It's, it's fascinating. Um, let's try and see, oh, say a platform like Etsy, which is empowering, yes. say, others to come together. Um, should Etsy be proactively thinking about how to regulate its, itself, how to collaborate with the government? Mm. Or is there something inherent about any cloud empire, which sort of yeah. inevitably becomes uh, a kind of a nation state if it becomes too successful? Well, so... You, you know, they can work with governments, but then again, the question is which government, because you're, you're, you know, you're active in, um, I don't know what the numbers are for Etsy, but, you know, Amazon marketplace has consumers in 180 countries around the world. Uh, Apple app store, like, likewise, uh, serves most countries in the world, 90% of transactions on Upwork, the online freelancing marketplace, are between a buyer and a seller in two different countries. 90% of sellers on eBay export to foreign countries. Um, so in this kind of situation, then the question, well, if you're a, 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 a digital platform company, well, which government should you uh, place yourself under? Um, Maybe a the, digital United Nations or something. Heaven well, knows. yeah, I mean, it'd be wonderful if we could do, if all the nations could, the territorial nation states could come together and, and regulate the internet as a whole. And while they're at it, they should also fix climate change. But the trouble is at the moment, international <laughs> collaboration in the sense of collaboration between states is not advancing. It's, it's in fact, it's... Uh, it's Falling yeah, down, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, it's falling down. We have hot war in Europe. Uh, we have, uh, hopefully not, but it, you know, looks like a cold war brewing between China and the West. And um, none of these things bode well for our ability, for states' ability to come together and collectively regulate the internet. And so, into this kind of gap, this this institutional void, um, people still need order on the internet. People still need somebody to enforce contracts, even transnationally. Um, and so into this gap, the, the cloud empire step. And um, how then, you know, my argument, obviously in the book is, well, let's look at what happened historically. What happened, we've, hmm. we've been here before. We've been before in a situation where out of anarchy, order is established by some uh, entity, some or centralized power 
powerful entity that can impose order and that way provide a great peaceful environment for commerce to flourish, but then also impose their own will on it and abuse that power on occasion. We've seen that uh, throughout across history and across cultures many times. Now, I've studied it in the context of uh, European history and Euro European Middle Ages, uh, but it's happened elsewhere as well. And what you see in Europe, but I think also in, in many other cases is that um, the people, the what I call the digital middle class that you uh, referenced before, mm. um, that is the people who start to become prosperous on these marketplaces, the successful app developers, the successful uh, merchants, the successful uh, streamers and influencers, um, they realize that actually my ability to carry on my trade, to earn a living, is entirely dependent on the goodwill of this platform company's management, what, what I call the platform princes. You know, people like uh, Bezos or now Musk on Twitter or Zuckerberg, um, who basically are 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 these uh, autocrats who get to decide what happens on the platform. Mm. They don't even have to listen to their shareholders very much because of the corporate governance structures in these companies tend to be very centralized. Um, so they these this this these this middle class these digital burgers. They live constantly in the fear that you know next morning there's an announcement. When they wake up, there's an email in the inbox from the platform where they do their business saying, "Sorry, the kind of thing that you do to make your living out of actually is not allowed anymore. Um, we've we've made a slight change to our terms of service, and sorry, you're out of business." And this is the exact opposite of what the internet was supposed to deliver, right? This no gatekeepers, freedom to do your own thing. Um, from that to a situation where you're at the mercy, your business takes place at the mercy of some, some emperor. Um, and so they're starting to realize this and they're starting to organize and they're starting to push back. So just to give one example, which I think you well, uh, you're well aware of, you referenced Etsy, the online crafts marketplace, 30,000 Etsy sellers got together this April and they went on strike to hmm. protest against the platform's leadership, increasing the taxes on the platform, increasing their take of every transaction. And they called it the Indie Merchants Guild. They're, they call their collaborative organization they call it the indie merchants guild <clears throat> and why i think this is fascinating is that in the middle ages it was the merchants and the artisans who then formed guilds and then those guilds started pushing back against the feudal lord's power saying actually we want first of all protection uh, from arbitrary expropriation that the the prince can just come in and say, I'm taking your business uh, or I'm imprisoning you. So they've, they formed guilds to mutually protect each other from such things. And then they started gradually demanding a greater and greater say also in how the marketplaces where they applied their trade were being run. 
And uh, now we see something very similar in, I think, starting to happen in the digital platform economy, where this middle class is starting to form these guilds uh, to mutually protect each other from the expropriations of the feudal lord. Um, and they're starting to also demand a say in how the platforms are being run, which I have uh, another story in the book. Would you call yourself a blockchain optimist or a blockchain skeptic? <laughs> because uh, a lot of the arguments that uh, yeah. are advanced by that, uh, you know, that section of uh, yes. internet users uh, would they want to agree with you. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. No. So I think their diagnosis is exactly right. Right. This idea that Web two is is has become controlled by these centralized uh, platforms which are gatekeepers and you know we have to rely on them and they're not accountable to the users and they own everything in the end i think their diagnosis is absolutely right and also if we go back to kind of uh, so this is the kind of web 2 web 3 discourse but if we go back to a few years ago when there was discussion of, of uh, enterprise blockchain right a use of blockchain for uh, uh, logistics, uh, for transportation, for, for supply chain management. There also the, the, the kind of concern was, you know, these businesses, they wanted the benefits of digitalization, of assigning digital identities to all their uh, goods and shipments and, and things like that. Um, but they'd seen from other industries that once you digitalize your business, then there is a high likelihood that it ends up, all the data ends up flowing to Google. Um, hmm. And you suddenly have this digital intermediary that is starting to kind of envelop your business and insert itself um, as the de facto uh, broker and ruler, ruler and gatekeeper in your business. So businesses wanted the benefits of digitalization, but they didn't want their data to fall under the control of the Silicon Valley giants. And, and, and then the, the kind of enterprise blockchain vendors pitch was, well, blockchain will fix this. It will give you the benefits of digitalization without those uh, intermediaries. And so I think, again, the, the diagnosis was right. As for the solution, um, I have, this chapter in the book uh, that uh, documents, it's a kind of history of Bitcoin and Ethereum and documents this uh, attempt to provide this new decentralized trustless solution, which would render those gatekeepers and intermediaries unnecessary and uh, instead have uh, this uh, decentralized uh, network of nodes take place, uh, take care of enforcing the rules on the network. Um, but it turns out that this this is a failure. And uh, in fact, even in this decentralized system, an ostensibly decentralized system, you have centralized sites of power. Uh, that in the end, the users end up relying on, whether mining corporations or exchanges or core software developers. So in the end, we have not, blockchain um, and Web3 have not solved this problem of centralized gatekeepers. They just merely 
um, managed to obscure who the gatekeepers are. So in their attempt to uh, address the problem of autocracy, but without relying on democracy, they end up, in my argument, creating a cryptocracy, which means rule by the unknown, <laughs> hidden rule. So it's it's, it's from out of the fry, uh, out of the frying pan and into the fire kind of situation is my assessment of, of um, the current state of blockchain and Web three. So clearly, a long way to go. Uh, I just want to double click a bit on change, whether it comes from um, you know people protesting on a digital platform or you know the digital merchant guild or indie merchant guild something yes. like that who uh, who really historically speaking creates change is it the middle class is it the elite is it uh, you mm -hmm. know the downtrodden and what does that mean in the cloud empire space or the digital platform space so uh, since i'm an economic sociologist uh, i in, in in the kinds of theory that we use we always find the engine, not always, but often the engine of change is somehow in economic interests and economic power. And first of all, the economic interests explain why these cloud empires rise in the first place. It's the same reason why the centralized state and the nation state arises, because business needs some kind of uh, institutional underpinnings um, to work. If there's no contract enforcement, if there's no trust, then it's impossible to do business on a large scale. You can do business in a small scale in a community with people whom you trust personally, but that doesn't scale. So in economic history, um, we, we have a, 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 a always the same pattern where when economies grow and markets grow, that growth goes hand in hand with the emergence of a centralized entity that uh, um, underpins uh, the rules uh, in that market. And the same has now happened on the, the internet. So that's the first stage. Then the second stage, some people start getting wealthy on these new markets. Since hmm. the mar markets grow, they create opportunities, and they, they create business. And then we have this emergence of a wealthy uh, a middle class. We also have the emergence of the downtrodden the which in the medieval European class system they are the peasants. They work the land. They they uh, are essential in feeding the entire uh, society. But they are so impoverished and so deprived that whenever they try to rebel against the feudal lords and against the princes, uh, their um, rebellions are easily put down and. Uh, uh, and the results are very unhappy. Instead, the middle class, once they start growing prosperous enough, they start to have wealth, they start to have connections, they start to have learning, also very important, they start to have learning and cultural competence uh, to challenge the feudal lords. They start to have allies uh, outside uh, outside the, the that that societal system, powerful allies, whether mercenaries or, or, or religious uh, organizations or, or other feudal lords. And then they muster all this, uh, all these resources, all this capital, and then they um, 
start to uh, push essentially for greater political rights and democracy and more equal sharing um, of the, the power and not just the, the princes at the top uh, having all the power. So it's the economy, basically it's economic forces once again, because once the, the middle layer starts to have more economic power mm. and starts to demand. And you see this in, in developmental economics as well. In, um, uh, you know, there's many, many theories of democratization, but the simplest and often most, uh, one that is often best able to account uh, for, for actual democratization processes is that when wealth is more equally distributed, not just at the top, there's a, the, the middle layer, then democracy follows and, and vice and vice versa. Whereas as long as all the economic resources are at the top, then it's very hard for political power to become uh, democratized either, even if formally you have uh, in principle democratic institutions like voting, if all the economic resources are very concentrated in one place, then they are able to capture the democratic system. But now I diverge a little bit. <laughs> and please feel free to, to interrupt you. me, by the way, if I go a little bit in the different I, I direction. Tangents. And it's very important. <laughs> I was wondering, just uh, building on top, yes. do you think Marx is relevant to digital platforms and cloud empires? So uh, Marx is a 19th century uh, socialist uh, uh, thinker and doer. And uh, in the platform economy, Today, we have a lot of sort of uh, activism and interest around labor movements, right? Around gig yeah. workers. The tech left. Uh, yeah. yeah. And there are, <clears throat> so there are in the platform, I, I talked about the peasants in the, the, the medieval economy, the agricultural uh, labor force. In my uh, analogy, uh, we have a similar class in the platform economy. So that's everyone whose menial labor is essential to keeping the platform economy running, but who are nevertheless not sharing in, in very much um, in its benefit. So we have uh, gig workers, we have social media moderators, we have data labelers who teach uh, AI. A basic job, um, yeah. Exactly. They're very, very important jobs, uh, but often not very well paid and the working conditions can be bad. Um, and so these people are uh, trying to organize. And I have I have studied that uh, a lot with my colleague, uh, Dr. Alex Wood. And I have a, a chapter in the book about these uh, digital peace workers who are moderating uh, social media and who are training the AI attempting to kind of come together and campaign for uh, better working conditions. But just like the medieval peasants, unfortunately, they are so impoverished that they are, uh, they just lack the resources to, uh, to, to, to put up uh, uh, a very big fight. Uh, they are, they cannot take very many risks. They cannot, take the risk of being delisted from the platform because they, they're, they're, they're entirely dependent on the platform for their livelihoods and so on and so on. And for these reasons, the kind of labor movement, the, the kind of uh, uh, 
um, things that Marx talks about, a labor, uh, um, um, a working class revolution, a working class sort of uh, uh, movement is, in my opinion, in my analysis, it's too early for that in the platform economy because we are still in the middle ages. So historically in Europe, you know, in the middle ages, you get the middle, uh, what, what in, in, in Marxist theory is sometimes called the gradual bourgeois democratic revolution, which means this middle class standing up and demanding political rights for themselves and they win political rights for themselves. And then we have at the beginning of the 19th century, a system of government, government which um, affords political rights to landed uh, landed uh, wealthy people essentially uh, or property owner the property owning class um, and then into this picture comes the labor movement and demands uh, that these po political rights are expanded to the entire population and not just to the property owning elite so the labor movement and Marx plays an important part in, historically in expanding democratic rights to the entire population but we're too early for that because we, we don't yet have the wedge of the middle class um, uh, demanding uh, political rights from the feudal lords to, uh, to the middle class. So in this analysis, they're too early. And I think the experience that we're seeing with gig workers attempts to organize partly uh, corresponds with this. Now, I don't want to discourage them. I mean, they have also won victories for themselves, particularly when they ally with um, national policymakers, um, and this is more doable in kind of local gig work like delivery drivers who can organize locally uh, it's more difficult to do in digital labor like moderation which can be supplied from everywhere in the world but then we have in the kind of you mentioned tech clash we have a slightly in my view related but slightly different uh, phenomenon is the tech workers themselves organizing right so not the contractors who are working as gig workers on platforms but the software developers product managers uh, who work as employees in uh, large silicon valley companies and obviously they also in the past few years have started increasingly to organize and to form to unionize and uh, this is uh, um, this is very interesting and uh, it can they can form a very powerful um, uh, sort of counterforce to the top management sometimes because they've, they've we've had these walkouts right at 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 Google, at Amazon, at uh, uh, Apple. We've had these walkouts where the tech workers um, protesting the top management decisions on some issues often related to uh gender equity or, or such things um they protested and they do a walkout and they can change sometimes the top management's uh, policies but uh, they i would say that they are still a pretty elite they're more in the bourgeois layer mm. they're more in the middle class layer they are very well earning uh, very uh, well to do uh, uh workers and so in my analysis, they are kind of the historical analogy for them is that they are the state bureaucrats. They are the, the, the state civil servants who keep the machinery 
the administration of the platform economy running. And it is the case historically also that the state, the civil servants, often being well-educated and educated in law in the past, now in, in, in programming, um, they um, often joined movements to resist the autocracy of their own head of state. You know, so if your head of state is an emperor and you don't like the way who, that they are too autocratic, then you ally with the rest of the middle class to actually demand a greater uh, political right. And, and I feel like that that is in some ways what is uh, happening. Awesome. Uh, we've covered quite a bit of ground. Uh, I just want to conclude today's uh, discussion with some recommendations of uh, perhaps a better policy or a better, mm. a more fair cloud empires or however they might exist. Mm. So what would be your considered set of recommendations to mm -hmm. one, these builders of cloud empires and then the regulators uh, who are yes. on the other side and to the participants? So the, you know, my first advice is to the small businesses who are on these platforms to get organized, to join the WhatsApp groups and the social media groups of other small businesses who are doing business on the same platform to share information, share tips, um, and to mount campaigns when necessary to get the platform uh, leaders to change their minds when they're, uh, proposing policies that would hurt the business. Because at the moment, there is a perverse situation where small businesses might actually be prevented uh, from collectively negotiating with the, the mega platform company because it might be considered a cartel. So competition yeah. law might actually protect the platform giant against the smaller businesses. Um, and we've talked about this to EU policymakers, and this is something that EU policymakers have have uh, 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 said that they will look into how to address this. And um, then my third piece of advice is to the people who build platform uh, empires, the, the, the rulers, uh, including the, the user's voice in the decision-making uh, could actually improve also the quality of their decisions. Apple, Apple, when it regulates the App Store, sometimes it issues a new rule, and this new rule ends up having some unintended consequences. It was intended to fight some spam, but it ends up also um, uh, disallowing some legitimate business, and now, now actually, uh, uh, completely unnecessarily, some legitimate business in the App Store is hurt. If there was a better way of including those small businesses' voice in the decision-making, then this kind of problems could be avoided. And think about it, how democratic states do it. When they're proposing uh, a new uh, law or regulation, they say, hey, we are thinking of regulating this area. Um, what do you think? You have two months to send in your opinions. And they gather, that way they gather data from uh, what different businesses and, and civil society groups think about this matter. And that allows them to avoid any unintended consequences and pitfalls. Uh, so that's the first stage. The second stage is, you know, you could have um, a representative body of 
the users on your platform who uh, is is empowered to actually represent the user base in the decision making of the company so i in the book i talk about a um, a game developer a game company the dusters they have half a million players in a game and um, when the players are upset about something they send lots of angry customer service emails uh, to the company and they the company just gets overwhelmed that they can't deal with all that input and it's not very useful uh, so instead what they did was already and they've been doing this for 10 years already it's very successful they said to the players look you're half a million people elect um, a representative body of 13 members and then that 13 members uh, comes to meet us the top management every year they have an annual meeting where they go through um the the players problems what problems they have and then they also discuss the company's plans going forward and what's especially exciting about this is that those 13 people those representatives they can be under nda and they can receive confidential information about the future plans of the company and they can give the player view on the future plans of the company. Um, because often the companies say, well, we can't really you know, do like governments do where we tell beforehand what we're going to do because you know, it's a competitiveness, it's a market uh, trade secret and so on. But you don't have to tell it to all the users, just have um, a representative body that has the mandate and has the legitimacy to represent user voice and, and run your plans through them and spot any obvious issues before they become a problem with your user base and you have a huge PR crisis in your hands. So my final advice is, is that also the platform giants, uh, it would be in their own interest to start to formalize ways of taking in uh, the user and especially the small business voice into their decision making. That is a fascinating note to end this particular podcast. Uh, I learned so much from reading your book, your papers, and hosting you today on Network Capital. Um, your book is uh, not only academically rich, but it's also very accessible. I hope lots and lots of people will read it. We'll attach the link of the book, and also uh, we'll put it as our reading recommendation for the month. Thank you so much, Billy. I look forward to meeting you in Oxford. Thank you so much, Utkaj. It was a fascinating discussion. Looking forward to seeing you again soon.